Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker-Whitelaw and here is my co-host Morgan Davies. Hello. So this week we are finally discussing the medieval fantasy movie The Green Knight. Directed by David Lowry, it's a loose adaptation of the 14th century poem Gawain and the Green Knight, which was written in Middle English and is a key story from the Arthurian legends. Dev Patel stars as Gawain, a young man who accepts a bizarre challenge from a magical green knight, sending him on a dangerous quest that forces him to evaluate his sense of honour. Uh, so this is like a very buzzy movie this year, a very cool and stylish independent drama that is rather different from your typical fantasy movies, partly because it cost a mere $15 million, and partly because it's like a pretty unusual retelling of Arthurian legends in general, and also this particular poem. Morgan and I have both recently reread the poem and therefore have lots of background for you in that regard. And I think we have quite similar opinions on how this film diverges from the text in that it is really not a faithful adaptation at all. And I have quite a lot of issues with that, as does Morgan. But conversely, I still really like the film, just not really kind of as as an adaptation of The Green Knight, whereas I think maybe Morgan's a little more negative. But I mean, this is going to be such a good movie to talk about. Got lots to say about the music, the production design, Dev Patel, Dev Patel's hair, the lighting, you know, the quantity of candles that King Arthur should have had in his court. <laughs> more is the answer. Yes. We're doing this movie now a few months after it was released in the United States because it took a while to get to the United Kingdom. So I saw this movie in July and do not remember it with perfect clarity. (laughs) However, I did read the bulk of the poem today. So I'm at least at that level. Part of the reason I mentioned having seen it a while ago is that I just found this movie kind of boring and it largely kind of evaporated from my head after watching it. I mean, I do remember most of what happens, but it did not stick with me in the way that it clearly has stuck with um, some other critics who really, really loved it. And that's largely, you know, a taste thing, obviously. Like, I just didn't find it that interesting. But I do think it will be interesting to talk about because the issues that I have with it are largely to do with the way that it interprets the poem. So normally we start these episodes by talking about the sort of director and or writer. But in this case, because the poem is so central, obviously, to what this movie is doing or not doing, as the case may be, I think we're going to start off with that instead. This is just like a canonical work of English literature. Yeah. And it's kind of an interesting choice for an adaptation because it's really not structured in a plot way that's like familiar to sort of 20, 20th or yeah, 21st I mean, century you audiences. Read the poem and you're like, this is not really suitable for a film that comes out now. But yeah. also like the film itself doesn't really have a particularly traditional structure. Like it is a road trip quest narrative, but it's a pretty weird one. The concept of like the original Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, written in the 14th century by an anonymous author a famous piece of literature and it's kind of playing to an audience who will already be familiar with the Arthurian legends and kind of the characters at play as was the case for kind of a lot of storytelling at this point is the sort of thing that probably would have been you know spoken out loud there's lots of really cool wordplay going on there which is as always sort of a big matter of debate for translation which is actually something we discussed in this week's Patreon minisode because Morgan has been reading a new translation of Beowulf so there's a lot of overlap there um but yeah like this story kind of like the film begins at Christmas at the court of King Arthur and they're all having a banquet it's a party it's wonderful everyone's very cool everyone's got great outfits they're having delicious food a lot of wassailing is happening which was a key problem I had with the film, lack of wassailing. But um, Gawain is like a young hero. He's one of the junior knights. He's King Arthur's nephew. But he is very much kind of the archetypal, like chivalric hero. He is, you know, he's pure of heart. He's sexy and handsome. And the important plot kicks off when the titular green knight shows up. It is a literally a green man who appears at the court and challenges any night to a beheading game. They will be allowed to strike one blow on the Green Knight and in return 
they will have to come to him one year later and he will strike them the same blow. And Gawain kills him in one blow by beheading him. But the Green Knight picks up his head um, because he's a supernatural creature and is like, haha, tricked you. Now you have to come to me in one year's time and get your blow in return. So to prove his honour, Sir Gawain will have to go and get himself beheaded in a year. And that is the only thing he can do as a, as a knight. That is his solemn duty. <laughs> so in a year's time, he goes. And rather than it being this sort of adventure, like you might assume from that kind of introduction, the rest of the poem actually takes place at this other court where he's welcomed by this lord and his wife. And that part of the narrative takes place over three nights where the husband will go out hunting and he shares an oath with Gawain where it's like, oh, I'll give you whatever I've hunted if you give me what you've received while you're back home. And what he receives is kisses from the man's wife because she is very seductively, you know, trying to chat up Gawain while they're at home. And there's all this very fun flirtatious interplay where he has to, he's caught between sort of morality and the chivalric code where like he can't obviously have sex with this woman who's married because that's adultery and it's unchristian but also he can't like betray this woman because that's not chivalric so he has to like respectfully kiss her and then of course the other part of the bargain is he then has to kiss her husband because that's the gift he's been given and then it kind of ends with this you know eventual confrontation between Gawain and the Green Knight he, he kind of proves his honour by surrendering to the Green Knight and uh, does not get beheaded because he's like been recognised as a great and chivalrous hero. And then he scoots off back home. Um, and there's also some symbolism to do with a, a green belt, which comes up in the movie. I don't know if we need to discuss that here, but um, that's the general gist of the narrative. Well, and he discovers that the Green Knight and the Lord yes, of the Castle they are the same are person. The same person. Yeah. What's so fascinating about this poem to me is that superficially it's kind of engaging with these very familiar ideas in medieval literature about chivalry and courtly love and also just like Christianity, which is a huge part of the poem. Like Jesus gets mentioned over and over and over again. Christmas is like the most important day in the poem. But you can really tell that the poet who gets referred to most commonly as the Pearl Poet because um, presumably he wrote another poem called Pearl is kind of making fun of a lot of these conventions or subverting them in a certain way. I was skimming some of the introduction of my edition of the text. It really struck me that a lot of the way that the scholarship, at least sort of historically, based on this very superficial research, has talked about the poem, I don't think has given enough credit to the poet in terms of there being a really sly tone to the writing. I mean, it's a really fun poem. It is yes. significantly more fun in tone than the movie. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And I think sometimes with a piece of historical literature, the older you get, the more often this happens. There's a tendency with a lot of readers, even very informed scholarly readers, to not be willing to credit a writer and then by extension, like a public with the ability to sort of be subversive or satirical. And I think that's absolutely part of what is happening in this poem. And there's also, it's incredibly, incredibly queer. So when the Green Knight shows up at the beginning, <laughs> oh my there, is so, <laughs> there is so much attention paid. And this is part of the poem, like the poem throughout. And this is very common in like medieval poems of this type. This happens in Beowulf too. They just spend so much time being like the green knight was so hot and he was covered in gems and gold and he just had such beautiful stuff all over him. <laughs> and again, the sort of attention to the, the jewelry is, and like the finery is very common because as you were saying, these were things that would get sort of performed or read out at court. And so the attention to uh, I think Marie Devana Headley, who does the, the new translation of Beowulf, uses the phrase blinged out at some point to talk about all of Beowulf's jewels. And I kept thinking about that reading this. And then talking about 
like hunting, which is a big part of the Green Knight also, Mm -hmm. like it's to entertain the audience on a certain level, right? And so you're talking about like, oh, they're like describing the clothes in incredible detail. Yeah, I mean, it's the glamour of masculinity. Totally. But it's to an excess in this poem in describing both the Green Knight at the beginning and then Gawain as it goes along. It's so much so that it's hard not to read intention into that, right? And when when the Green Knight and Gawain are interacting at the beginning, they're like fighting over the axe in a way that is so phallic. It's like, has to be intentional. (laughs) Like, uh, come on. And then once he gets to the castle, so Gawain stays behind with the lady who remains unnamed. And the Lord of the castle goes out and completes these various hunting trips And they're described, as I said, in great detail, which is clearly partially to entertain the audience, but partially to emphasize that he's this, like, big manly man, and he's physically described as being this, like, big, hulking, handsome guy. And Gawain is, like, lying in bed, messing around with the lady of the manor. And there's also all this mirroring between the hunt and the seduction. Yes. And so he's really a feminized character in a lot of ways, like... He's very beautiful. He's very virtuous and sort of pure and chaste. But he's not, despite sort of being chivalric and like noble, he doesn't really do much of anything until the very end of the poem. And I think there's a real, like the end of the poem is very moralizing in a more traditional way. But I think the fact that the whole poem has him like hanging out in this this castle that's basically run by these seducers and basically having a great time and like not doing anything in a very luxurious way seems again, very kind of intentional and intentionally subversive to me. So he's like making out with both both the Lord and the lady repeatedly. Although as one of the things I was reading points out, the lady keeps trying to seduce him and with the Lord, like that doesn't seem to be, it's quite explicitly on the table, but you can kind of read into yeah. it. Yeah, it's also like one of these things where homosocial relationships in medieval times drastically different from anything like post seventeen hundred. Totally. So, like you know, there was different vibes, there was different like views of what sexuality is, but at the same time, it is like widely viewed as an extremely queer poem, and that is one of the key yeah. things people were kind of talking about when this film was first announced. Like there was lots of chat about like how sexy is the Green Knight going to be? Is this going to be like a really kind of queer film? Um, And the answer is no, the titular Green Knight is not sexy in this movie. And it's like, it's not particularly a queer movie. I read this in college. I read this the first semester I was in college. So this is like over 10 years ago. And I like vaguely remembered it, but not in any great detail at all. And watching the movie, I definitely was like, this is not what the poem is like, but I didn't remember the specifics. And so reading, I like looked at the Wikipedia plot summary afterwards and was like, oh yeah, this is definitely not right. But reading it again this week, I was really struck by the fact that the movie structurally actually does use a certain kind of medieval plot structure. Like it's structured like a medieval romance, right? Which is like, it's episodic. So This is kind of unusual in a certain... I mean, I'm not an expert on medieval literature, but a lot of the very famous medieval poems are very episodic in nature. So you'll just like... Like Lancelot, Knight of the Cart is a very famous one. And like, he just goes and does one thing and then he does another thing and then he does another thing. And it just kind kind of like you can recite it in episodes over several nights. Correct. A great way to think about this if you have zero familiarity with literature from this period is Monty Python and the Holy Grail, which is actually like a really good reconstruction of this. It perfectly fits what they were doing comedically anyway, where they could just kind of string a bunch of sketches together and then have that be the movie. But like, it kind of is perfect for that era of literature, right? And this movie is basically structured like that. Like it ha- it's a quest narrative, like Gawain does a bunch of different stuff, but that's not how this poem is set up. And the poem itself is not really enough for a movie. So I can understand that on one level. But in other ways, it is very not medieval at all. Like the ethos of the film, I think, really doesn't hew to how people thought 
at that time, at least as evidenced by the literature that they were writing. And in terms of the poem itself, like I was talking to our mutual friend, Charlotte Geeter about this and she liked the movie, but what she said, which I thought was right, was that like the movie just doesn't really take the poem seriously. And I think that that is kind of correct because I would be really curious to see a movie version, not necessarily of this specifically, but like of a piece of medieval literature that's really seriously trying to kind of reconstruct the like ethos of that time, which is completely different from how we think now, right? I mean, a good thing to have in your mind is something which I'm sure everyone has seen, which is just like the illustrations you see on illuminated manuscripts that are just like really weird people fighting giant snails and that sort of thing. And it's like, that doesn't necessarily mean anything, but you can get into your brain like there's a silliness and there's like a strangeness to, you know, pop culture of the period like any other period of pop culture. I'm sure you and I have spoken about this before, but my pet peeve about so many King Arthur's sort of adjacent historical action dramas of recent years is, I mean, A, obviously, like the fact that it's action focused is like undesirable to me. But B, it's like they've all been sort of overtaken by the wave of grittiness, basically. So like the the most recent like King Arthur movies and Robin Hood movies and stuff of that ilk have all had an unrelentingly brown grey colour palette and are very much about like, oh, we're going to be in the mud. It's going to be very grimy. There's going to be lots of angst. And that's how to do that for a modern audience, which I don't think is correct. Like you can make a film that is fun and is full of feasts and is exciting and has lots of romance. And like, that's kind of what the Arthurian legends are. Like there's a lot of them are very tragic and like intensely emotional and some which are extremely fantastical. But I feel like kind of the party spirit is something that's missing a lot. And it's also unfortunate because for fantasy fans, like having a big feast is like a key trope in in fantasy, you know, like that's a cool thing that people enjoy. And with this film, although in many ways, it's like a very strange and somewhat experimental indie film like it's definitely not playing to a mainstream audience the two things that it does that felt to me very much in line with things I don't enjoy about more recent sort of medieval serious gritty dramas is like a just the fact that lots of it is kind of in the dark which is something we can definitely talk about a bit more when we talk about the kind of the visual style because like this film is so gorgeous in many ways but like visually it doesn't need to be this dark And it doesn't need to be this grey. Like, I think it's a very colourful poem and they kind of excise that part of the text. And the second part is kind of how they've decided to characterise Gawain. And this is the point where I have these, like, two diverging opinions. Because on the one hand, the characterization here has, like, nothing to do with the poem at all and just, like, completely changes the entire purpose of the story. On the other hand, I find it, like, a really interesting and compelling character and I love Dev Patel in this role. Like, it was, for me very enjoyable, like not like in a fun way, because it's not really a fun story, as I said. But um, instead of him being this really wonderful, pure, handsome, exciting hero, they really do have him in this far more traditional role for like a modern drama, which is a coming of age story about this very morally fallible young man who is basically a fuckboy at the beginning of the story. He's very uncertain and he's kind of striving to find his own identity and this is something Dev Patel's talked about in interviews as well. He was like, he was attracted to the role because it was sort of the sense of being this person who's surrounded by legends and is like trying to make a name for himself, which I think is like true for any young actor who's working really prominently in Hollywood. But especially if you're like a young Asian actor, like who's also British and is like working in Hollywood, like very a strange position to be in and probably very alienating. Yeah, there was this great interview in the New York Times where there was kind of, It was a profile where they kind of interviewed Dev Patel and also people around him in this film. And he said, whether you're an Instagram model or a YouTuber, there's this thirst to be recognized, have your legend spoken about to get the likes. And for me as a young actor in Hollywood, you're dealing with issues of masculinity, ego, success, and fame. That's the same quest this young man goes on to be a known knight. All of that I related to. And also the fact that like he's referring to him as a young man who goes on to be a knight is like another crucial part of the movie that's completely different because instead of him being this sort of established figure you know he's this guy who has never had an adventure because the introductory part of the film is him going to sit at the high table or like go to sit next to the throne with King Arthur and Guinevere who are quite elderly in this movie they've intentionally cast like older actors and they're more infirm and this is like the first time he's really had a proper interaction with his own uncle so you know there's kind of a split 
and their family because Gawain's mother is Morgan Le Fay. And King Arthur is like, oh, tell me a story of yourself. And Gawain has to admit that he has no stories. And then Guinevere very ominously is like, you will have a story, kind of introducing the concept of Gawain sort of being aware of his own potential to be part of the Arthurian narrative. Like there was a lot of kind of self-aware stuff going on in this movie to do with the idea of it being a story, which is something I always find super interesting and compelling, like in movies and books, you know, which kind of goes into like the fact that the movie is like broken up in title cards, like Morgan said, kind of in this episodic way. And at one point there is a story within a story where Gawain kind of watches his own impending doom in the form of this like Punch and Judy puppet show. But yeah, like he is introduced as this character who could easily be a double meaning for the title, where he is the Green Knight, because he's green and new, he's fresh, he's inexperienced, he's stupid, and he takes on this duel with the actual Green Knight. And instead of being like, oh, it's my honour and joy to go off on a quest next year, he's obviously fucking scared shitless because he doesn't want to get beheaded. Yeah, and I just found the character... I mean, I think Dad Patel's really good in this movie. I think he's a great actor, period, obviously. And I found this character pretty much a cipher. And if he hadn't been good, I think this movie would have been really punishing because you need someone really charismatic to be leading you through or else I would have just been like, why am I watching this? But it did really feel to me like David Lowry, who wrote and directed this movie um, and has made several other films, including Ain't Them Body Saints, which was his debut, which was kind of like a crime noir type thing with Casey Affleck and Rita Mara. He did a tiny little indie called The Ghost Story with those two actors as well, which is really amazing. And he did a Disney movie called Pete's Dragon, very well respected and liked director by critics. It felt like he kind of was, had taken this really fascinating and kind of ambiguous poem that is largely to me to do with gender and sexuality right and been like I'm going to insert this like essentially macho character I mean macho is not quite the right word because he is he starts off from a sort of subordinate he's position, very concerned but... with his own manhood like the, 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 the he's yes. turned it into a story that's about this guy who's unconfident and essentially unheroic but he is sort of struggling with whether he even wants to be a hero. Because there's this conversation in the middle where like people keep being like, oh, you're a knight. And he'll say like, I'm not a knight. And then he's not sure whether this sort of chivalric attitude is something he wants to incorporate into his life or not, because it has so much danger involved. Which is so modern and not medieval at all. And like, I have zero issue whatsoever with doing like a historical drama set in the 1300s that's like not a reflection of like medieval poetry like that's obviously fine but it felt kind of dissonant to me given the source material to have again this like fuckboy essentially especially since we get introduced to him at a brothel and he's like in love with this woman who works there but then like abandons her I was like I've seen this before like it's just that's just not interesting to yeah, me yeah I think that for me like the big weakness definitely was like the relationship he has with his girlfriend because um, this is a character who's inserted into the film. Uh, Alicia Vikander plays two roles, the first of which is Essel, who is a sex worker, who is Sir Gawain's girlfriend, but he's not treating her that well. There's this very kind of ironic moment towards the beginning where you get this title card about chivalry and it's just after he's basically just like abandoned her because he needs, knows he needs to go to church, but like he's just sort of dropped her off in the brothel. And it's clearly they have like a long-term relationship, but he doesn't respect her that much. And the other woman in his life is of course his mother, Morgan Le Fay, who is this more enigmatic figure as is appropriate for Morgan who is sort of manipulating his life in rather unexplained ways through magic but like you can kind of see she's the one who sort of engineers the arrival of the Green Knight at the beginning of the film but then later on in the film once you get to the point where it's closer to the poem like where he enters the court of this lord and lady the lady is played by Alicia Vikander as well with a different accent and look a different vibe to when she's playing Essel and 
I think Morgan didn't like either of these. I think Alicia Wakanda was a bit of a weird choice for this film in general, but I really liked her when she was playing the lady where she's got this sort of vampiric, gothic, weird <laughs> like attitude and it sort of has this long monologue where she talks about like, oh, moss is going to grow on your grey stone. And I was like, love it. Love this like seductive evil goth. But when she's playing Essel, I was just like, this is not a good character. And I don't know if like, oh, he's being shit to this woman is really an interesting way to introduce that element to the character like i like morgan said there's a lot of stories like this there's not a a lot of stories that are about being chivalrous in the very old sense of the word well and it also ties in with what you were saying about the look of the film being which i think is like in terms of a craft perspective aside from it being too dark which i definitely agree with like i think all the technicians and artisans who worked on this are clearly like incredibly accomplished and talented people because it looks really it's beautiful. Stunning. But I, especially having now reread the poem, I was kind of like, well, but why does it look like this? Because I think the comparison you draw to other kind of like gritty medieval films that have come out in the past, say 10 years is really apt because this desire to be like, Oh, it's going to be real. Which, like, what the fuck does that mean? Like, we don't know. Obviously, there's historical work that you can reference, but it's kind of all speculation. And the literature from that period makes such a big deal out of the finery and the fantasy that I'm not sure I understand, again, with something like this, as opposed to something that's more deliberately historical. Why not be more audacious and gaudy right and yeah i mean that's why everyone loves a knight's tale (laughs) yeah but for this specifically like it seems so clear to me that going basically completely in the opposite direction and really having all of this jewelry and finery etc etc is kind of what the poem would demand and would be way more interesting in terms of like dealing with the masculinity stuff, not that, that with this version that he wrote, but with a, a hypothetical other version that the poem could perhaps create. That like having Dev Patel, who obviously look looks great always, but like he basically is riding around in like a dark tunic. I mean, the his whole time. cloak is incredible, gorgeous cloak, which really I think is crucial to the film's success, if anything, because. It's so rare for there to be a real pop of colour in this movie. Like, there are moments where they have uh, kind of shots that are really yellow and really green and really red. And there are some sort of warmer moments. And obviously there's this role for a really cool little orange fox. Love the fox. Um, But on the whole, it's like a gorgeous but relatively subdued palette. And, like, they need this mustard green cloak that's so distinctive for him. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, I feel like they could even have just done exactly the same story. And if they'd gone for, like, the full jewellery party scene for the Arthurian court, even that would have been incredibly effective because you could have had a contrast between that and kind of the ruggedness of the way they're viewing sort of being a hands-on knight doing a quest. You know, you could kind of have some sort of hypocrisy angle. Whereas it also almost feels like kind of Protestant, (laughs) which is, like, not appropriate for the period. Like, it shouldn't be Protestant. (laughs) I totally agree. I mean, the court scene in particular, I remember sitting in the theater and feeling like, oh, this is not going to go well because it is so dour. Sean Harris, who is a great actor, plays Arthur and is just like doom and glooming along (laughs) talking to the assembled people. There's no light. Like there is, this is the most humorless film. Like it is just so grim. And as you say, like the, and I think this is reflective of, history to a certain degree because like life was really hard for these people for obvious reasons so when they could all get together they would get really hammered and like have a party because there has to be some release valve right so to have the sort of court scene be so humorless it just doesn't quite make sense to me and I think the design of the green knight is VFX is really great and like it's aesthetically pleasing on some level but He's not it's green not, enough. <laughs> he's well, not, he's not green, green enough. He's not sexy. <laughs> no. And like, again, you read the poem and it's just like this incredibly hot man who's like covered with gold. Like, come on, give give us that. Like, like the, the vibrancy is certainly lacking. I mean, clearly it's just like a philosophical difference that we have 
with the entire concept of what he's done aesthetically here because I mean I am not the only person who had this problem which is that I saw this movie in theaters the first movie I've seen in like a year and a half and there was too much light in the theater for me to see some scenes because it was like they had like a big like exit sign and stuff and I was like this is like Batman levels of dark which is not something one usually expects from a movie which like does have gorgeous cinematography and like incredible production values. And um, I mean, I think we should basically just talk more about the production design now, but I was just joking on Twitter afterwards, like all the kind of cheap ass, dumb, stupid fantasy horror films have like 4 million candles all over everything. And it's like, I watch these shows being like, God, why does this vampire have so many candles? And in this, I'm like, King Arthur can afford more candles. Like, why is he saying in this like a freezing cold, completely bare stone hall, like staring at each other and just, you know, where's the wassailing? Yeah. So, I mean, should we say much about the episodes between the court and the second court i don't have a ton to say about them because i found it all pretty boring (laughs) i i did not share that opinion but i feel like i don't have much to analyze there's a fun little role for barry keown is that how you pronounce his name my apologies if i've mispronounced that name (laughs) um who is of course one of our premier weird little role actors really coming into his own. And he is not, I mean, you know, he's playing not to type because he has so many types, but he is definitely, you know, someone someone saw this role in the script and was like, ah, yes, we would like him to show up and play a malevolent peasant. <laughs> so <laughs> Dev Patel gets kidnapped by him and his squad of goons in the forest. And there's this great little moment where you see Gawain just like die and rot into a skeleton and then they reverse time um, just to sort of show the way his story might have gone because there's this constant sense of being aware of him as a mythic figure. And then the other kind of most important chapter is they've inserted a little story with St. Winifred, who is a Welsh saint. Obviously there's a strong Welsh element to a lot of Arthurian legends, which is 100% ignored by Hollywood at every turn. My apologies to Wales, but um, up and coming actress Erin Kellerman, who's starred in like dozens of Disney projects at this point, shows up and plays Winifred, who she's like a ghost who's been beheaded by her rapist and Gowan has to fish out her head out of the pond. And uh, I really liked that sequence. It was a kind of small little horror vignette and it was actually quite funny. Like there were people laughing in my audience for that. So maybe we just find it funnier than Morgan did. But um, I, I liked that that bit the best. Yeah, and there's just this great little exchange where it's just very socially awkward. Like, he just keeps having these really socially awkward conversations with people all the way along this journey. And um, and she's like, can you get my head out of the pond? And because he's just had this bad experience and he's just getting more and more cynical, he's like, what will you give me in return? And she's just like, why would you ask me that? Like, <laughs> it's like, I need my head. This is awful. Like, of course. And so, like, he's kind of he doesn't have that chivalric instinct, but he does dive into the pond to get her head. And then to me, the most important vignette and like one of the most lasting images of the movie for me is when he encounters these giants. And that's not even a story. It's just part of his sort of road trip experience. By this time, he's paired up with this cute little fox and he's been traversing all of these perilous landscapes in his beautiful yellow cloak. And he comes to this cliff edge and there's these huge giants walking across the landscape and uh, this is one of the things that got picked out in kind of the interviews I was reading with the production designers because this film is in addition to being pretty low budgeted it's relatively low on CGI so this is kind of a composite shot it's not like fully CGI giants they just body painted a bunch of models who walked around and then they stuck them together with Dev Patel but um it's just this really eerie like moment of pure fantasy that you rarely get in fantasy cinema because like there's a real sort of concern about making things too weird <laughs> where he's trying to have this interaction with a giant and persuade her to carry him across this big valley and like they they just can't communicate with each other at all like they're completely different beings and when the fox howls the giants recognize that and begin to howl to each other. And it's like this whale song that turns into this part of the soundtrack that's just these sort of booming sort of noises. And I just found that incredibly cool and powerful and I loved it. (laughs) 
Well, you also omitted a salient detail, which is that before he sees the giants, uh, he eats some mushrooms. So there's the implication that he's possibly tripping. Oh, yeah, he does take (laughs) mushrooms, but I completely think the giants are real, so... (laughs) I mean, you are welcome to that opinion. I think the mushrooms are not As soon as he ate the mushrooms, Um, I was like, Gawain, I know how this is going to go. You did not have good luck here. (laughs) Don't eat the mushrooms. (laughs) Um, But, I mean, we we will discuss the end of the story at the end but before that i think we should talk a bit about sort of production stuff unless you've got something else uh no i mean basically like what happens after that before the end end is is the stuff at the castle which i is massively cut down from the poem joel edgerton plays the lord and alicia vikander as you said is is there again yeah Um, i think like joel edgerton as a concept, as a man, he kind of, for me, is sort of a sliding scale between just sort of standard <laughs> nothingness. And he does do some roles which are like pretty convincingly threatening. Um, I've never been particularly wowed by him. I think this was like a relatively good Joel Edgerton role. But I also think that this movie would have benefited from having someone more dynamic in that part, if you see what I mean. And potentially someone like weirder looking or hotter in some way. You know what I mean? Yes, although there's so little for him to do that I don't think it makes a huge difference. Oh, that's why you hire a fun character actor. Just just throw in a Tilda Swinton in there and see how they'll mix things up. <laughs> <laughs> Joel Edgerton's best work by far has come in the movies he's made with, with Jeff Nichols. He had a supporting part in Midnight Special that he was really good in, and he should have absolutely gotten nominated for an Oscar for the lead role in Loving which I think I talked about on this yeah, podcast. Yeah, I've been meaning to watch that. It's meant to be great. He's incredible in that movie, but I do not have strong feelings on his other work, including this film, in which he is fine. I mean, I think when he showed up in this, I was like slightly biased against him because the most recent thing I saw him in was The King, uh, which was like your absolute ultimate, like paint everything gray historical film where they had like, they did, it was Joel Edgerton also, I think wrote the screenplay for that. And it starred, you are it correct. starred Timothy yeah. Chalamet. And it was like a non Shakespearean adaptation of like Shakespeare's Henry plays. And then Joel Edgerton did all these interviews where he was like, well, you know, people just don't get the play. Like, I I just want to do it in common language and just make it really accessible. And I watched this and I was like, this is 1% as fun as when Tom Hiddleston just did like a straightforward, like version of this as like historical (laughs) Shakespeare with nothing experimental. And it was fun as hell. So, but that is just pure bias speaking. I mean, Joel shows up as the, uh, as like Lord Bertilak or whatever his name is at the end. And then his wife is Alicia Vikander who is bringing out some like weird menacing energy here and has this cool library of books that she's written slash read. I just don't think, I mean, I think she is truly awful in as Essel in the first part of the movie. Yeah, I mean, Essel is the one part of this story that's just like corny. Yeah, um, it's really not her fault. I mean, she's bad, but it's not her fault so much as like the part's bad and I think she's miscast. But I also, and like, I think she's a really good actor. I like her and- I remember talking about this with my friend I saw the movie with after we watched it and we were kind of trying to figure out what didn't work and we were both like she's just not she's just not sexy enough (laughs) in that second part and it's not that she's not attractive because obviously she is and she's sexy in like a sort of menacing creepy way in Ex Machina of course but like the stuff in that castle in the poem with that woman is like she's fully like I'm seducing you now (laughs) and you know and something about the performance in this like she just seems too much of like a refined lady and it didn't it I just didn't really buy it and well metaphorically tying in with the color palette and the lack of candles there is not very much warmth in this film right like it's I think it's less her and more the direction because again like the poem is so horny and you don't get very much of that in the movie except in that section but it doesn't really feel like that it's more like it's being depicted but it's not coming through and like the <laughs> the like vibe as much so it just feels or like this is how I felt anyway like it just felt a bit odd to me 
so the whole I just still kind of off. I remember thinking the production design was great when I saw it, but I don't remember any specifics at this point. So if you have stuff to say about that, you should because you've seen it so much more recently. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I kind of looked up some interviews with various people behind the scenes. Um, it was interesting because I've obviously I'm not familiar with David Lowry's other work, but it seems like he is both extremely collaborative, like he's not an auteur type director, and also he works with the same people basically over and over again, in some cases for like a decade. And that includes his production designer, Jade Healy, and his costume designer, Malgosia Terzanska, and also the composer, Daniel Hart, who was a former member of the band, The Polyphonic Spree, and also um, did a degree in playwriting and kind of helped Lowry like co-write some of his earlier scripts and stuff. Like it seems like he does a lot of kind of script work with the people who are on the more technical side of filmmaking, which is pretty rare. Like it's not something you really hear a lot in interviews with writer directors. So I find that interesting, but um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> the, the most intriguing detail I found out when reading these interviews was with the caution designer saying that um, she was like, David's vegan. So going into the movie, I decided that we would not use any leather or any fur in the costumes. Which is fascinating because it's like, it doesn't seem like, it, she doesn't make it sound like he sort of gave that as like a, you know, missive from above. She was like, I'm going to respect David's wishes and not, and it's like, that's fascinating because it's like, you don't necessarily notice it, but like there is definitely a noticeable lack of fur in this very cold, wintry movie, which is intriguing. And for Gawain, like his signature outfit is, as I said, this big cloak, which is appears in all the posters and looks incredible. And it's just a really unusual color, especially on a man, because like men don't really wear colors in movies. <laughs> and first of all, it's made of bark cloth, which I don't I think probably most people probably will not have heard of this like I think it's more commonly used um in Africa than Europe but um it's literally made from bark like it's made from tree bark it's meant to be the color of a gorse bush like gorse flowers which is I don't know if you get them in America but we got lots of them here <laughs> and it's a quilt and the kind of seams of the quilt that sort of push down the puffy parts of the filling are sewn in the pattern of a thumbprint so it's got like a thumbprint pattern. I was like, I love a detail that no one could see. And then on his armor, <laughs> there's like Sabaic scripture, which is this kind of old Arabic script from that period. You know, clearly this woman put like so much fucking research into this because it's definitely one of these movies that takes the approach of having multiple historical periods in the same film because, you know that's more fun and more loosey-goosey than just trying to pinpoint some specific period. And also, as the costume designer pointed out in this interview with The Observer, which I'll link in the show notes, like the poem's written in the 14th century, but it's kind of covering stories that date back to the 6th century. And by that point, it's already talking about something that's in the past. So you already have this kind of flexibility within the original text. So she was kind of looking into all of these paintings from the period and then also like some of the other stuff was just way more modern because like when you get to the point with the lord and lady towards the end you're suddenly like wait their castle is like really modern and they do kind of describe it as like neo-gothic in these interviews but my other favorite detail from her is that she's the person who introduced the idea of Essel's bells into the movie which is this kind of she's wearing bells along with her very sort of Durer and grey outfits and when when Gawain goes off on his quest she pulls off one of her bells and like gives it to him as this little chivalric token and then later on in the film he just like abandons this kind of metaphorically abandoning her because he's a shithole and these bells were things that were worn by people who were seen as unclean during this historical period um, as just like a symbol of sort of shame and like the caste system and this costume designer Malgosia Terzanska kind of knew this from her experience like, and from her knowledge and like research and she pointed this out to David Lowry and then he wrote that concept into the script so that came from the costume designer which I thought was a really cool detail and just in terms of like the overall production design Jade Healy said that like the inspirations were The Dark Crystal, Bram Stoker's Dracula, The Passion of Joan of Arc, Willow, the classic fantasy movie which apparently is a big favourite of David Lowry's and Justin Curzel's Macbeth, which I think we did an episode on many years ago, um, and is like a really fun version of the like gritty medieval cinema. <laughs> I don't know. 
know if I use the word fun to describe it. No, it's not fun at all because it is Macbeth and it's extremely (laughs) grim. But artistically, I found that film invigorating and it has a tremendous soundtrack. Absolute banger. Yeah, it's the cinematography of that movie is unbelievable. Um, And we both greatly enjoyed it when he went on to make Assassin's Creed. (laughs) (laughs) With like the entire same... Yeah, he was like, how about we bring the Macbeth cast over here and we do the weirdest and least appreciated of video game movies. (laughs) Um, Speaking of music, why don't you just continue your (laughs) little lecture for us? Because I, as I said, I mean... I have not been well, and so did basically no research for this episode. So Gavia is carrying the load on this, and I also, I mean, you always do the music yeah. anyway. So love, love some music. Continue, please. I think my final note in the production design is actually a question, because there was something I noticed right at the beginning of the film, which I couldn't find an answer to, and I don't know if you will have remembered it, but if, an, if someone in the audience, like one of our listeners knows, let me know. But like in the witch scene, there's this really prominent like triangular green light in the background, and I was just like, what is that? Because they've got like a red light and a green light that are kind of windows, I guess, in the background of that scene. And they seem like incredibly obvious and like they must tie into the red green symbolism of the movie. But I have no idea what that is. Three cornered triangle of like witchcraft. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but yeah, in terms of the music, as I said, Daniel Hart is the composer here who's done various movies with David Lowry. And there was a fantastic podcast interview with him at The Spool, which is like 40 minutes long. I listened to it today. Really interesting. I now love this guy. <laughs> and he kind of goes through the whole album for the for the movie, like track by track. And it's a really interestingly varied score. He goes both towards like extremely modern kind of horror movie score music to straightforward medieval songs, which he has written. Like, I don't think he uses any genuine like medieval music in here, but he is clearly an obsessive researcher. Um, and the two instruments I want to highlight here are the nickel harpa and the apprehension engine. The apprehension engine is uh, an instrument that was invented for the movie The Witch. And it's this like bizarre contraption that just makes nothing but horror movie noises. It's really alarming and it's got this cult following. Like this one guy just like built one in Toronto and was like, well, this is going to be great for like one use only. And then as soon as people heard the soundtrack from The Witch, people were immediately like, please build me my own apprehension engine. (laughs) And like you can look up YouTube's videos of this thing. It literally just makes like moaning noises and like creaks. It's really disturbing. Um, And like, it's not like I listened to this movie and thought, oh, I can hear the apprehension engine. But like when I read, when I heard this interview, I was like, yeah, makes sense. (laughs) And the other the other instrument is the nickel harpa, which I just, I love this instrument. It's got a great name. It's a Scandinavian stringed instrument that is kind of like a hurdy-gurdy. And I realize that's not going to be helpful for people who do not know what a hurdy-gurdy is. But this is an instrument which is historically appropriate for this period, but it was kind of used for centuries after as well. And it combines a noise that kind of sounds like a, a bowed instrument, like a sort of horse violin or viola um, because it is a bowed instrument but also the way you press down the strings is with keys and you kind of hold it in your lap just google what a nickel harper looks like basically Um, but it has this really unique sound that does not feel modern in any way so loads of movie soundtrack designers love to use this because it immediately puts you in that sort of Game of Thrones zone. And that's partly because of just the, the sort of the, the hoarseness of the instrument makes it sound really different from the purity of something like a violin. But also it has a drone string. And during this period of music, like kind of medieval times, obviously that spans like centuries of time, but music hadn't kind of evolved to a point that we kind of find recognisable as like quote-unquote Western classical music at this point. So a lot of the harmonies were way simpler. There was a lot of music that was just like you'd have a drone and then you'd have a folk song over the top or you wouldn't really have people harmonising, you just have sort of singing in unison. And the nickel harpa is basically like a one-man orchestra because you've got your drone and you've got your, your melody. And then in the rest of the kind of soundtrack for this movie, you've got other things that are very much kind of playing into medieval music traditions. Like you've got a lot of choral music, but it's all quite like old school choral music. It doesn't really feel like something you'd hear in like the 18th century or something. So 
you know, Daniel Hart, he loves his research. He seems to have a very flexible attitude toward like mixing these extremely old techniques with stuff that feels modern and very eerie and disturbing, like the the kind of the whale song thing that they did, that they did with the uh, the giants. And also it seems like um he and David Lowry like are just constantly going back and forth with this stuff because David Lowry's not a musician, but because they've got this like long-term collaborative relationship, he really knows what to ask for. And he can just ask for something really weird. And then Daniel Hart would be like, sure. <laughs> so I'm very interested. I might even just like watch some of his other movies just because I'm curious about what they sound like. Yeah, um, the score for a ghost story is incredible. And it is, I mean, I don't, re- because I it takes a lot for me to remember the score from a movie. I don't remember the specifics of this one. But like, needless to say, it is completely different from this because it's a modern film. So he clearly has a lot of range. When I found out it was the same guy, I was like, I guess it makes sense because they work together. But like, well, I mean, it's, it's like he did the, the he's like in the polyphonic spree. Like, <laughs> yeah, talented individual. So why don't we talk about the end of the movie now? I'm sure that anyone listening to this has seen this film at this point, but um, we will be spoiling the end. So basically. Alicia Vikander gives Gowan this, like, green belt that she says will protect him from harm, which is one of the closest things to the poem in the movie. Yeah. Although I was also confused because, like, his mother gives him a green belt at the beginning of the film, and I couldn't actually tell if it was meant to be the same belt. The stuff with his mom is the most incomprehensible thing in this whole movie. Charlotte and I were also talking about this. It makes... No fucking sense. Because she's like orchestrated this whole thing without telling him. But, you know, spoiler alert, it seems to end with his head being chopped off. So like, I'm <laughs> not sure why that's never explained. A lot of my other complaints about this, I mean, I I think it like doesn't, the movie doesn't really work. But again, other people, including you, clearly enjoyed it a lot more. So like, I'm obviously willing to just say like, tastes differ. But this stuff with his mother, I was just like, this is not, like, the movie does not justify this in any way. Like, what the fuck? Yeah, her moti- her motives are extremely oblique because Morgan Le Fay is, like, this huge, iconic character. And the actress they've got her playing her, Sarita Chowdhury, has this amazing stage presence and has just got very cool, strong, powerful witch vibes. And She's so yeah, great. And, like, a really cool introduction with all of these witches. And they do also kind of come in toward the end as well. But the motive for her setting up this quest is just, you can't, you can't fathom it really. You can interpret it as like, oh, she wants her son to prove himself. Or you could interpret her as being like, oh, she wants to reveal the falsity of like all this masculine heroism. But you kind of have to like dig deep for either of those interpretations because the movie doesn't really explain that. Yeah, I found that to be the biggest failing of the movie, frankly. Because he takes the belt and then goes to see the Green Knight. And in the poem, he's wearing this belt and he sort of gets down to receive the blow and flinches once and the knight sort of chews him out. And then he sort of gets ready again. And the knight like cuts him a little bit on his neck and is like, I see you have this belt on. So like you cheated a little bit, but you've cheated because you love your life. So... Like, to me, that's justifiable. And it ends with Gowan going back to Camelot and, like, he has this belt and, like, the scar and the story that he tells after is kind of about, like, his sin, which was that he was sort of, like, afraid to meet the challenge at the end. But again, you get the sense that the poem is a little bit, like, this is bullshit, right? (laughs) Because it's nonsense, right? And I really like that the night at the end is, like, yeah, but like you just want to live and that's totally what everybody wants. Yeah. So that's And fine. also it's like he tells the story of this sin and fallibility, but the poem, I think, yeah, like you said, the poem doesn't really see this as like a really major moral failing, especially since he kind of course corrects at the end. But also what he really gets is a really great story. Like the end of this yes. is like you get a great story and that's kind of what the whole point is. <laughs> well, and it's it's perfect because it, has the superficial level of like being covered by Christian morality. Yeah, like, oh, there's a moral but, at the end. 
<laughs> but if you dig deep enough, I mean, it reminds me of when we talk about like Hayes Cody or movies where like at the end it all gets sewn up, but like actually it's not really the point of what's happening here, right? And of course, this is like a great work of literature and people have different ways of interpreting it, which is great, but that was certainly how I took it. And what happens in the film is he sort of flinches a couple times and the Green Knight gets ready to sort of cut his head off again. And then he has this long vision where he imagines surviving and then kind of growing old and becoming king all under the sort of false pretenses of having cheated at the game, essentially. And also he screws over Essel, his girlfriend. Like she bears his child and then he discards her. Well, it's a series of progressively yeah Yeah. he gets worse and worse as a person yeah and so he takes off the belt and the knight sort of crouches down and says i don't remember to something like i don't remember if there's a preceding line but said the last line of the movie is and now it's time to chop off your head and the screen cuts to black which is really kind of like a great moment but also i was like what (laughs) i (laughs) really yeah i really liked that ending um I mean, as you can probably tell, there was a lot of things in this movie I was kind of ambivalent towards, but the ending really won me over again. Like that whole dream sequence towards the end is something that could have gone horrendously wrong. I'm sure a lot of people did not like it. It's a bold move. They they fully spend like what felt like a relatively long amount of time kind of fast forwarding through his life and sort of showing like this is what it would be to be a man without honour. And then the tone of the final line felt really important to me because you have this really visually gorgeous scene where he's in this green chapel, you know, it's all leafy. He's kneeling down to be beheaded. And you really have a visceral sense of what it's like to be beheaded in this film because they've kind of brought that image back several times. So it feels really impactful. But once he's finally accepted this and he's decided he is going to be chivalric and also very possibly dead, the tone that the Green Knight takes just before he's about to, you know, chop him up and the screen fades to black is like, it's really warm and humorous. Like he has this jokey tone and then he just goes like, now off with your head. And that kind of expression he had to me just like made it really pleasurable. And I also felt like the ambiguity was such that I can easily just read that as like having the same end as the poem where he is in the end not actually gonna die but also it's like it kind of makes you think about you know the central question of his quest which is like yes you want to be a good person but do you actually want to be a good person or do you want to be viewed as heroic and in the end now you've achieved this completely absurd quest that you set up with yourself because you want to impress a bunch of men are you just gonna end up dead and that's ridiculous yeah i think i just found the movie's engagement with those questions really superficial and uninteresting because it, I didn't think it was deep at all. And so like that montage to me then felt kind of almost the moralizing tone of that I pushed against because I was like, so he doesn't want to die. So he's like cheating at the game, like whatever. But that you can buy more easily if you've convincingly set up that like, this is how the world works in this universe. Right. Which ironically, the poem does a lot better, even though he kind of gets out of it at the end. It's a way more medieval way of thinking actually than the rest of the movie sort of gives to you. And then it, it just felt kind of like a cop out in a way to me, or like a almost conservative way of thinking which I think ties in a little bit to the movie's whole sense of like being fixated on these like masculine ideas that I, it seems like it's trying to subvert, but I don't think it actually is. Right. It doesn't offer anything particularly fresh either in terms of its discussion of, you know, toxic masculinity, I guess, or the roles that are given to women where Winifred is like by far the most interesting. Morgan is kind of too obscure and then Essel is kind of a mess. And the queer elements are really just subdued down to the point where there's like a kiss between Dev Patel and Joel Edgerton. And that's pretty much it. And it's like barely. Yeah. So I think there. David Lowry just isn't interested in that. 
I mean, at all, I guess. I guess just to like cap off, kind of the key, one of the key parts of like this film's origin story, I guess, is that it's probably like the most delayed film by uh, by COVID because it was meant to premiere like literally the week that the pandemic hit because I was meant to see that movie at South by Southwest. But due to the extensive delays, it meant that David Lowry had way more time to extensively re-edit the film. And in interviews, like he and his other collaborators have spoken about, like he was really unhappy with the earlier edit that was going to screen. And now he's much more confident about the one that he eventually ended up with. But that also means that the film that we've got is something which has been produced from like an extensive re-edit. And that is something that's a lot easier when you're making a more experimental film that has an unusual narrative structure and lots of sort of, you know, time jumps and that sort of thing. But it still means that like some of the stuff that doesn't make sense likely is because it's been edited in like an unusual way. And the reason why he was unhappy with his original edit is probably because there's other stuff he could have filmed but didn't and then they couldn't reshoot it because then COVID happened, you know, and also it's not a big budget movie. So it seems like this was like a complicated project for him and more difficult than the other films he'd made, which I get the impression were more narratively conventional. And, uh, you know, there's like logistical reasons behind that shit. I mean, a ghost story is much less narratively conventional than this. A ghost story is fully experimentally weird, but it's way lower budget. Mm -hmm. I remember reading about that edit too. I think he was also really ill making the film to the point of like almost being delirious at certain points, which like I can't imagine having to direct (laughs) a movie in that And also like it's like they're doing the whole thing in like the freezing cold rain. (laughs) Yeah. But I was again talking to the friend I saw this with like the original cut was like 90 minutes long and this is at least half an hour longer than that. And we were both like, I bet I would have liked a shorter cut more because this is just like luxurious, slow, takes its time, which if you're not on its wavelength, it can feel like you're just, it's taking a long time to get where it's going. Well, if you've not got like blackout curtains in your house, like you're not gonna... (laughs) Well, right, like how on earth is this gonna play at home? I can't imagine. Watch it at night. (laughs) because it's really dark so yeah mixed feelings for me on this film i highly recommend reading the poem though or if you read it in college reading it again it's pretty quick and i I had such a good time i've been trying to read some older pre-19th century stuff because it's been a long time since i read anything like that and medieval literature is really fun i mean also this stuff is pure entertainment you know well, right. <laughs> they're literally just like things that were read or performed aloud for people. And there's no sense of like modern mores about sex or whatever. So it's very common to have lots of dirty jokes. I mean, Chaucer is just full of that shit. So it's entertaining on that level, too. Do you have any final, final thoughts you want to share on this one? Not really. I look forward to Dev Patel making a wide wide array of other projects. Yeah, I mean, we didn't talk about him very much just because what I mainly have to say about him is he's really good in this and he's kind of not the problem. Yeah, <laughs> like, I, I mean, basically, like, the kind of, one of the key things he brings to this movie is just like pure screen presence. And I don't mean yeah. that in the sense of like, not practiced acting because he is an extremely experienced actor who has a great deal of range but also like Morgan said right at the beginning of the episode it's kind of a role that requires a really high level of charisma because he has this star power in this movie that really kind of outweighs the fact that he is playing a character that's not very likable and he is just so kind of beautiful and impressive to watch and just has great vibes. I mean the story behind him being cast is, of course, that David Lowry was thinking, trying to think of who would play Gowan, and he saw a fashion photo shoot with Dev Patel looking really cool and beautiful, and started spontaneously drawing a picture of Dev Patel on a horse, which is real fangirl behavior. I love it, but like in that New York Times profile, there's a quote from David Lowry where he says. From the moment I met him, I was very aware that he was going to be the thing that makes the film epic. If we couldn't move to an epic location, if we weren't able to find the right vista, I could always fall back on him because he will give us that in a close-up. And I was just like, yeah, pretty much sums it up. (laughs) Yeah. Again, I didn't like this movie very much, but without him, I would have just been like, I fucking hate this. And he makes it like, 
It's okay. <laughs> Next week, we will be talking about something that I liked a lot more than this movie, which is the miniseries The North Water. Yeah. I'm three out of five episodes in, and when I started tweeting about this, several people replied being like, I hated this show. <laughs> Can't wait to have a controversial opinion. I mean, I don't know if it even can be controversial because, like, no one is watching this. But I agree no one with Morgan. I think it's thing. really good. It's just, like, it's it's gruesome. Like, unpleasant things happen in the show, but in a well-executed way. Yeah, if you don't like violence happening to animals, you should definitely not watch or humans, this television Morgan. program. <laughs> oh, I know. But I feel like people have a yeah, yeah. specific It's set on a whaling vessel, animals. and I'm pretty sure that that, like, sums it up. They are gonna kill yeah. a whale in this film, in this show. Yeah, it stars Jack O'Connell and Colin Farrell. It's very grim. I've loved this show so much. And I think all the people involved in, like, major creative positions are really interesting. So that will be fun to talk about, too. Um, and it's about, you know, terror in the Arctic, <laughs> yeah. which is a I love terror in the Arctic. So. Before I started, I was like... Yes, there's like, this is like the kind of new equivalent to the terror. I already like have a long time fascination with horrible historical events happening at the polls. But then once I started watching, I was like, okay, I, I get why this is not as popular as the terror, because the reason why people love the terror is because there's all this kind of eccentricity and tragic male bonding. And bonding is not the word I would describe for what happens in no. the North Water. <laughs> I like the terror a lot. We did an episode on that years ago and I was clearly just in a bad mood or something because I remember watching a few episodes and being like, I hate this. And then I watched it, the whole thing years later. It's really good. But um, it's definitely designed as like television to be like consumed as entertainment, even if it is really thoughtful and interesting. And this is not like... I love this because it's like you've hired Colin Farrell and spent all this money to like sail to Norway on a real historical boat for a show that has no target audience whatsoever. <laughs> Yep. And they they sure did that. So anyway, we will be talking about that at length next week. Hopefully some of you will watch it if you can stomach it. Yeah, only five episodes. Yeah, it's it's definitely like gruesome, but I don't think gratuitously so. And it's also definitely like engrossing on a plot level. Like I found it really I don't I'm not a crazy about violence and stuff and I found it quite gripping. To watch, yeah, I so. mean, we wouldn't be recognize we wouldn't be recommending a show that was just people being like hacked to bits for five episodes. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, that will be next week, and then we'll be talking about film festival stuff the week after. And if you would like to listen to our summer book recommendations, including Beowulf, very relevant to this episode, coincidentally, uh, you can find that at Patreon.com/slash/OverInvestedPodcast. Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor, and you can find me on YouTube at Behind the Seams. And you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at Overinvested Pod. Our Tumblr is Overinvested Podcast, and our website is OverinvestedPodcast.com. Thanks. Bye. <laughs>